All right, we're going to, to, to continue and, in fact, end our series today on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to, to study commandment number nine and number ten. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. <clears throat> and we're going to look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 16 through 17. Exodus chapter 20, verses 16 through 17. Title of the message is the Ten Commandments, number nine and ten. Words and wrong wishing. Words and wrong wishing. Verses 16 and 17 of Exodus. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Lord, help us as we study. The, um, the last five commandments <clears throat> primarily deal with what we should not do. And it's all in relationship to one another. Now, the, the one commandment that deals with our interpersonal relationships that is affirmative meaning it is encouraging us to do something, is commandment number five, which is honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the earth. Um, but that, that's the only, only commandment we have out of the ten. There are many other commandments that are to-dos. But it's the only commandment that we have out of the ten that talk about interaction, that talks about interaction between human beings that is affirming something should be done. The last five are all just God saying, stop it. <laughs> just quit it. Don't. And you, it's, it's amazing. Somehow or another, if we obey in those five areas, we get credit. But we haven't done anything. It's what we didn't do. God's just saying, please stop. Don't kill each other. Don't steal from one another. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie and don't covet. Real simple, very direct, but all about stopping something. And if you will stop doing the wicked stuff, then God will bless you. He's not setting the bar real high and saying, I want you to make sure that not only should you tithe, but give an extra 5% every other year. I want to make sure that you love your neighbors, so make, make, do what you can to bless them on a regular basis. Every third day of the week, do something kind. Nothing like that. Just stop sinning. Please, just stop treating your neighbor horribly. And we think we're really good at getting better as humans. When we have to have God say, Okay, listen, I'm going to bring it real low. Just don't steal your neighbor's wife. Just don't murder him. And you'll be good. You'll be good. It really reveals the wickedness of our own heart and how messed up we are that God has to lower the bar that much. But here he talks about what it means to make sure that we are integral with the words of our mouth. Now, some versions of Scripture will talk about this passage and shorten it and just say, do not lie. 
but, but lying is within the context of what happens when you bear false witness against your neighbor. Now specifically, the command was there to make sure that you didn't lie about somebody so that they would be convicted of something they did not do. You didn't tell a fabricated story to someone that somehow put them in a bad light. You made sure that you were truthful when you were asked about what they did do. You could not be bribed to create some idea about them being less than in front of somebody else when they should not have been. When somebody was honorable, you considered them dishonorable, and the words of your mouth did not ascribe to them the honor that was due. Do not begin to show your neighbor as something different than he really is to anybody else. Gossip? Are you listening to me? I'm not talking about just a court of law. Gossip. And most, most folk don't... Th- I mean, the internet has just made gossip normal. You think if you're not involved in the conversation, you are disengaged completely from society. You've got to input. You've got to tweet. You've got to Instagram something that lets you feel like you're in it. Stay out of it. People may hear your opinion today, but they won't care tomorrow. Somebody else will trump you with something a little bit louder on the Internet. I beg you, do not bear false witness against your neighbor and don't talk about them in a way that's unflattering. Why? It's important that we honor God with the words of our mouth. And the subtitle to this message is, the two points I want to make, what it means to not have guile in your life, which is deceit, and the green-eyed monster which is envy. Guile is that thing on the inside that twists the soul. You can't ever trust somebody. Jesus, Jesus looked at Nathaniel, who happened to be a friend of Philip's. And Philip was a disciple, we believe, of John the Baptist, who was bringing a buddy of his to Christ. And he was trying to tell Nathaniel in John chapter 2 who Jesus was. And Nathaniel just couldn't get it because Philip was saying he's from Nazareth, meaning Jesus was from Nazareth. And Philip was saying he was the Messiah, but they couldn't find any place in Scripture where the Messiah actually came from Nazareth. So Nathaniel, who obviously was a student at at some level of, of the Scriptures, said, how can any good thing come from Nazareth? He wasn't talking about Nazareth being bad. He was just saying, I can't find any place in Scripture from that, that talks about the Messiah emanating from there. Philip, not understanding everything, says, just come and see. I, I, can't, I can't share with you anymore. Just come and see. He brings him to Jesus. When Jesus sees Nathanael, he says, Oh, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael goes, How do you know me? And he talks about his life a little bit. He says, You think it's amazing that I say I saw you under the fig tree? You will see, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man before he goes into glory in you. My goodness, when God sees somebody in whom there is no guile, no shrewdness, no twisting of soul in order to manipulate the circumstances so that they can benefit while others do not, so that people can see them as being different than they really are, God says you see stuff you normally would not see. He opens your eyes to view things you normally would not view 
in the, in the, in the everyday occurrence of human, of human life. God allows you the privilege of a people into some realities that are really precious. And he commends Nathaniel for having no guile. Making sure that there is no something on the inside of you that is always trying to bring somebody down in order to help you get up. It's bad. It's horrible. And if you're a Christian, it's intolerable. If you're an unbeliever, it's equally so, but you have excuse because you don't know Jesus. Doesn't mean you're not guilty. We just understand. You have no restraint on your soul. You don't have the boundaries necessary to do right even though you know what's right. We Christians, there is no excuse. You know what's right. You can't just say, well, I'm only human. Listen to me. If you are human, do right because the Bible was written to you. If you are human, the Holy Ghost resides upon you. He resides in you. He doesn't in dogs. He doesn't live in horses. As smart as dolphins are, they ain't saved. They are not saved. You are. He can empower you to do the right thing. You don't have an excuse. Stop saying I'm only human. In fact, use that as a reason you should obey. Because you're made in his image. He's recrafted you to live at a high level and do the right thing on a regular basis. Say right. Stop gossiping. Stop slandering. Don't bear false witness. Don't begin to say things that are untrue about people so that they can be seen in a different light by others. Stop it. Love your neighbor differently. Love your neighbor. Also, you probably, whenever given the opportunity to share exactly what happened in a circumstance of your life that is questionable, you probably ought to share all the truth. All all the truth. Now, there is never a good excuse to lie in order to make yourself seem better in the life, in the eyes of somebody else. Never. Never. Now, I'm going to give you some good reasons to lie. And all of you say, whoa, I I like this pastor. This pastor can help a brother. Wait. There is never a good reason for you to lie in order to make yourself seem better or to cover your own sin. Ever. And there is never a good reason for you to tell tell half-truths. Tell half of what really happened. You had an accident. And... uh, the police officer is asking you, what happened? See, so you rear-ended somebody. And um, you want to know, what, did, didn't you see the car in front of you? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, and I, I was just a little distracted. I, I, I didn't see him like I should have seen him. You were on your phone. It wasn't just the regular, oh, boom. It was, boom. You, you only tell part of the truth because it will hurt you more to tell it all. That's, that's lying. I didn't get any amens on this point in the last <laughs> service either. I didn't get any. That's lying.
Thank you. I didn't know how long I was going to wait, but thank you. We're called to be truthful. See, Jesus, in describing himself, talks about who he is. And he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except by me. He says he's the truth. So when you do not agree with him by living truth, even if it hurts you to do so, you impede your own progress in getting into fellowship with the Father because he's the way and the truth. And you can't get there except by him. So if you're lying, your fellowship with the Father has been hindered because you can't get there by lying. Are you listening to me? Now, that does not mean that somehow your relationship with God is eternally hindered. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your experience with him on a daily basis, having fellowship with him. You are not unlike Adam and Eve, that after they sinned and ate from the tree of which they were not to eat, they went and hid. Why? Because they did not want God to see them in this condition. And you are hiding your sin before whoever, whomever, because you don't want, you, you don't want them to see you in this condition. And ultimately, it's not you're hiding it before people. You're running from God. And, and how far can you run where he cannot find you? And it's not like he doesn't know where you are when you're hiding. He understands it. You are just delaying the process that you need to get fully restored by running by not telling the truth in a hurry. And the only way you're going to get forgiven as you need to get forgiven, the only way you're going to get restored as you need to be restored is if you run to him as quickly as possible by confessing your sin openly. Now, let me tell you what happens when you don't confess all of your sin openly. You are actually saying to God, I don't need forgiveness there. I don't need it. I'm cool. I can handle this. I can deal redemptively with my own life. I don't need your blood. I don't need the cross here. That's not a very good solution. Your fig leaves fall off. They dry up and wither. And they do not cover you well. You need help. And the best way to get it, David said, when I, was, when I, when I held my sin within me in Psalm 32, I wasted away. I groaned. My bones hurt while I was on my bed. And then I decided, let me confess it. I released it. And he forgave the guilt of my iniquity and cleansed my sin. It is not until you fully confess that you can experience the forgiveness that you desperately need and the restoration that happens immediately. You are not your own savior. Don't try to figure out how to fix your own sin. Release that iniquity. Let it go. And the best way to do that is to confess it out of your mouth. When you do so, God comes immediately, cleanses your life, restores you. Oh, we people are not very, not very good examples of what restoration looks like. Meaning when somebody hurts us, we rarely restore them immediately. We, we, first of all, we, we don't talk to them for a long period of time. If they do come and apologize, we usually suck our teeth. <laughs> Will you please forgive me? I don't know. Yeah. You know you got to do it because you're a believer. But you aren't restoring relationship. You're still holding them at arm's distance. Maybe you, you are so emotionally scarred that you can't bring them close. But that's where you need to find God in a hurry so that you can get healed up, 
so that you don't delay the progress that the Lord wants to have between you and that person. The enemy wants to stop whatever benefit you can give to one another. And so he separates you from each other because the longer you are separated and the further distance you are from each other, the less benefit you can give to each other. And the less benefit you give, the less kingdom progress there is in the world. So the enemy's desire is to keep you from that person who hurts you. And you say, well, I just need, I, I just need space. For what? For what? You need space because you won't hurt them? So you won't hurt them? Well, what do you need space for? You need to find God and get close. And then find them and get closer. Space doesn't heal anything. It doesn't help anything. The faster you get closer to God, the faster you'll get closer to people. And understand what forgiveness really feels like when you got to give it. Oh, you want it when you need it. When, you, when it's turned, when the circumstances are reversed and you're the one saying, I'm sorry, it's one of these, well, you're supposed to forgive me. I can't believe you're, can't we just be boys? What, where's, it's almost, if it goes on longer than you're comfortable, can't you just get over it? We are incredulous when somebody else can't forgive us. But we are real tolerant when we don't forgive anybody else. God help us, please, to understand what it means to restore. Because when we sin and we confess what we need to, and we repent of that which we've done, God immediately reestablishes relationship, forgives us immediately, and allows us a privilege of feeling like what we did yesterday never happened. That's what it feels like. Now, it did happen. But before God, he says, I remember your sins no more. It's not because he develops amnesia. It's because he chooses not to contextualize you in the framework and, and prison of your last offense. He sees you free. That's the way we need to see other people. Can you say amen to that? Amen. But it's important that it's confessed. And until somebody confesses, then forgiveness is withheld, not because it is not wanting to be given, but because you're not receiving it. We also try to justify ourselves. In, cir- in, in cases where circumstances are all pointing to we are wrong, and there's something on the inside of us that just cannot stand to be seen any other way than we want to be seen. And so even though everybody knows we're wrong, we try to say why we were wrong and try to help people understand it really was an accident. I didn't mean, well, you you understand it wasn't my fault. All that doesn't matter. Just repent. Just say, I'm sorry and get on with it. Don't try to justify yourself. I um, I lied to my, my wife one time. Yeah. We had, two, we had our third and fourth child, and Garrison was our third. He's here on the front row. Our fourth was adopted, Meredith. Brought her home from the hospital. The mama was 16. Daddy was 15. She was eight months pregnant. Say, could anybody adopt our baby in your church? Cynthia and I adopted her. Been a blessing to our lives ever since. Brought her home from the hospital as a baby. We're the only parent she's ever known. Amazing. We are so happy. But it was like we had virtual twins because they were only seven months apart, Garrison and Meredith. And Cynthia, my dear bride, nursed all of our children. And she nursed them until, like, they were able to ask for food. 
It was a little embarrassing in public, I'm telling you. Mom, I'm hungry. I wasn't mad because it was healthy. I was, I was happy about it. But when you had virtual twins, resources came a little shy every once in a while. You just didn't have enough for both. And so we, we got, you know, the, the plastic stuff, the, the soy stuff, the Infamil and Similac. Well, Similac worked. Infamil didn't work as well, but it was on sale. Every man knows what I'm talking about. It was on sale. It's on sale. <laughs> Cynthia knew it didn't work, but I'd bought a bunch of it. And um, it was my day to keep the kids. She went shopping, and she said, here's the formula. And I saw that infamil sitting in my cupboard. She said, now this stuff doesn't work. Stuff happens in their gut. It's just not good for them. I don't like it. Make sure you feed them Similac. (laughs) Yes, dear. I used that infamil. I mean, I poured it in those bottles and got that hot water going. It It was great. Just great. Felt, felt, felt really no, no guilt at all. <laughs> she came home. She said, you feed the babies? Yeah, yeah, I did. Did you give them Similac? <laughs> yeah, sure did. Now, I know y'all may think this is trivial, but this is a big deal to me. So, 20 minutes later, I said, dear, I just lied to you. I fed him in for milk. She looked at me and says, you, you, I can't trust you. I'm, I'm sorry. It was on sale. Now you say, Pastor, if that's the only thing you got in your relationship about which trust might be questioned, you got it good. I mean, you got it real good. My point is this, that I couldn't go before God knowing I'd lied to my wife. I just couldn't live knowing that I'd lied to my wife. And nobody died. My daughter was fine. Meredith, both of them were fine. But I wasn't fine. What happens when your heart is pricked by that which most people just let go? Do you acquiesce to the substandard life that everybody else says is okay? Or do you choose to live at a high level even if it hurts you? Even if it hurts you. Now, my wife is marvelous. She forgave me and went on. I never did it again. In fact, I went and took all the infamil and threw it out, even though it was on sale. Truth, truth is important. If we are to be people of integrity, then stuff ought to come out of our mouth that aligns itself with the word. And 
Remember, when you don't live what you say, you're lying. You're lying. They call it hypocrisy. For this sermon today, I'm going to call it lying. Live what you believe. And when you don't, hurry up and repent and start over. Second point, green-eyed monster. Ah, wait, 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 wait. Before I get there, I told you I'd tell you some stuff you can't lie about. You, you, can, you can lie about things that protect others for the benefit of their life. 1939, Germany. Would it be proper for a man who is harboring Jewish people that were destined to die, hiding them in his basement? When the SS came to his door, say, are you harboring Jews? He says, no. You better lie. Absolutely. Underground Railroad here in America, slaves running from their masters. Harriet Tubman and many households all along the way from the south to the north. Slave masters looking for their slaves. Are they in this house? Never seen one. That's a good lie. Those of you who are looking at me thinking, wait, 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 wait. You got Bible on that? Yep. Rahab. Spies coming into the promised land, coming across the Jordan from the east to the west, come to Jericho. And at Jericho, they're supposed to occupy the city. They send in some spies to see what the city's like. Somebody sees that there are spies there. They hide out at a woman's house named Rahab. And Rahab happens to be a madam, and that is not a term of respect. They hide, Rahab hides the spies, the Jewish spies, in the sheaves of, of wheat. I don't know what that means. I don't know how it was, but they hid them. It must have been harvest season. On a roof. Authorities come to Rahab's house, say, you seen these spies? You're looking for them. Never seen them. Don't know who they are. Don't know what you're talking about. God thought so much of Rahab, this Jericho, non-Israelite woman, that he put her in the Messianic ancestry. Yeah, sometimes it's good to lie if it protects somebody else from unjust punishment. Are you listening to me? All right. Let's go to the green-eyed monster. Envy or covetousness. They are synonymous terms. Um, It's desiring that which is somebody else's. Now, I need to, to, to distinguish between covetousness and jealousy. Jealousy, um, the concept is that which is distinguished in the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you are a Hebrew or you understood Greek as knowing the context of the, the word itself being used in order to know exactly what it, what it means. Now, Paul uses the word jealousy to say that love is not jealous in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, it's almost as if he's saying that jealousy is something bad and love doesn't do that. But you have to understand it in the context of what he's saying. It's much like we knowing what, uh, what love means when we say it. So if somebody, we, we understand love as, as the word that describes an intense like. But when we say we love our spouses or we love our children, we're not meaning the same thing as when we say we love ice cream. Everybody knows that. We're not devoted to ice cream. We just like it a lot. Oh, I loved that movie. You want to marry it? No, we're not. You get my point. We understand in the context what we're saying and what we're not saying. Same thing with the word jealousy in the Greek and the Hebrew. Though we in America, in our English, have not seen jealousy as being an admirable trait in any context. 
And so you need to separate it by understanding best that when Paul says love is not jealous, he means love is not envious. And envy is, is desiring that which is somebody else's. Jealousy is desiring that which is your own. And jealousy is good. Jealousy is not crazy. Some of y'all are crazy justifying it as being righteous and jealous. But if, if there is somebody that is coming between a man and a woman who are, who are bound in marriage, it is right for either party to be jealous and fight for that relationship. Why? Because they are desiring that which is theirs. You gave yourself to me. I gave myself to you. This isn't a threesome. We are each other's. We don't share each other. And there ought to be a jealousy. Again, jealousy is not crazy. (laughs) But covetousness, that's all wrong every day. Every day. You don't need to desire that which is somebody else's. It bleeds over into what we talked about last week with respect to theft and adultery. Covetousness is the seedbed behind all adultery and theft. It's, it's, it's the, the ground out of which both of those outer sins grow. If you don't covet somebody's stuff, then you have no desire to steal it. If you don't covet somebody's wife, you'll never commit adultery. Covetousness shows how small you are and how small you think your God is. Because you actually believe that he gave what he was supposed to give to you to somebody else. And he's that small and so depleted of resources that you now have to go and get what, what you believe is supposed to be yours from somebody else. Because the Lord can't provide for you and him. He can't do that. He's too small. Enlarge your vision of your God. He is big enough. He is strong enough. He is able enough to provide for you and everybody else in the world. He hasn't forgotten you. And the thing that you think that is supposed to be yours, very well might be yours. But if it's not yours now, he doesn't want you to have it. Not now. Or he may not want you to have it at all. And then you have to decide, why do I want something that God doesn't want me to have? Where are my priorities? How come my desires are not his desires? Why do I desire things he doesn't want? Where is my heart? Then you have to do a heart check and say, Lord, something's wrong with me. You need to prioritize your life according to God's desires rather than your own and not think that somehow because you want it, it's supposed to be. And you're looking for God to co-stamp your life. He doesn't do that. Your vision is too small or it's all wrong. One of the two. He's not going to co-sign your life. He's asking you to get involved with his plan. So when you desire that which is somebody else's, you're showing how small your faith is in your God to provide for you. What you need to do is just flip it. And you need to have a knee-jerk go-to response that whenever you see somebody who's got theirs that you believe should be yours, just say, wow, God, you gave that person that stuff. If you gave it to them, you can sure provide for me. Because normally this, when you covet that which is somebody else's, some, some, some rationalization happens in your brain that sounds something like this. They shouldn't have it anyway. 
I know how they got it. Mm, 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 mm. You rarely ever want somebody's stuff that actually got it the right way. Oh, when you see a righteous man, a holy man, a holy woman that's got the stuff the right way, you say, good on them. Man, they're amazing. I, I, I'm not them. That's really great. But we rationalize and begin to think they shouldn't have it anyway. It ought to be mine. It ought to be mine. And remember, whenever somebody, whenever somebody gets theirs, they never get yours. Never. And if you take theirs as yours, you may have possession, but you never have ownership. So don't covet. Your covetousness shows how little faith you have in your God to provide for you. Your God is big. He loves you. And he wants to provide for you in particular. The stuff you do not have right now, either you should not have, ultimately, or you should not have it now, one of the two. And if you have not lived long enough to thank God for not giving you what you prayed for 10 years ago, you haven't been privileged like that yet. There are so many things. I prayed and asked God. I transferred schools. To be with this girl that I knew was supposed to be my wife. And she's a marvelous woman. I gave up my limited, insignificant football scholarship career. (laughs) Yeah, I played, just not well. I played. And I transferred to giving all that up because I wanted to be with my girl that I thought I was supposed to be with for the rest of my life. And I prayed to God for this. We were high school sweethearts. I was a junior in college and I transferred in the middle of my junior year just to be with her my senior year. Had some other reasons, but that was primary. And I got there two and a half months later and I got right with God. And three and a half months later, she was gone. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. She was a wonderful woman. Didn't have anything to do with who she was. Just not for me. I know you think you need it now. But if you don't have it, worship now because you'll worship later. Worship now. Say, thank you, Lord, for not giving it to me now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray.